Welcome to this week's episode of Inside the GM Studio, a podcast about RPGs, the RPG hobby, mostly centered towards the game masters and some of the players alike. I am your host, Matt. I am David. And today we've got uh, we got a few of them electronic mails uh, set in that uh, I thought were going to be kind of cool to talk about, especially this. They're they bring Dave. Uh, are they asked for Dave by name? I guess you should say oh. there, there are questions for the both of us, but your name is in both the emails and mine are not really, if okay. I remember right, All maybe right. I'm well, wrong. Maybe you're wrong. But, uh, we'll have our community questions. Uh, Dave, did you guys play at all? Yeah. We've we been played playing last... any of the games. We played Good, last night. Yeah. How'd they go? Um, we're starting to get into the thick of the adventure. Um, so that's, that's good. Uh, taking such a hiatus, like we took a week off, and I realized I kind of need to be a little more diligent about when we play every week, kind of doing the freeform thing, like I can kind of keep track of where the plot is and all the moving parts. Uh, but that, you know, I realized I was like, wait, where were we? And I kind of like, <laughs> I left it on the plate because I, it, well, it's, we had discussed this before. When you don't end on a cliffhanger, it's difficult often to kind of keep track of what's happening. And so that's exactly what happened. We kind of got to a juncture in the adventure where the party was kind of, you know, doing some gambling. And so that was kind of fun. Um, but they were just kind of buttoning up a day before they went out, like, on a next quest. And I was like, did we finish that up? Did What's happening? And so I just, we sat, and I was actually kind of, it was a good opportunity to test my player's level of engagement because I was like, okay, so take it away. What What were we doing? And they were just like, they were like, oh, yeah, we kind of done this, and this, I got my notes here. And I was like, oh, you guys actually were paying attention. <laughs> um, so that was cool. Um, we got through a little bit of just kind of uh, – it was one of those sessions where you're kind of recalibrating. You know, with short, shorter sessions, you kind of need to recalibrate every now and again, and kind of you're shifting gears. And now we're getting into the thick of kind of exploration. I introduced an NPC because a random encounter came up, and it was uh, – I usually kind of do when I do freeform – kind of do like okay so random encounter in this area will be like a 15 to a 20 or an 18 to 20 and then um you know 20 at 19 or prominent encounters always no matter what the mm -hmm. range is and then i'll just roll even or odd and odd is bad even is like a beneficial encounter roll the 20 got an even i was like okay this is a good segue to introduce uh an npc mm -hmm. and so I did that. I introduced the NPC, got through a little of exploration, role playing. So Oscar. now with your uh, with your limited, I guess I should say, because you're not going completely no notes. But what are you doing for NPCs? Uh, yeah, I have the uh, the NPC is just kind of like a homebrew. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of wanted a healer, but I didn't want to have a cleric, so I kind of gave him. I didn't want to have a bard, too much management, so I just kind of piecemealed a few class characteristics. Um, kind of plays into this week's topic if we happen to get to it. But yeah, you know, I, I like the character's class and role in the party. More broadly, their role, uh, not not just their class. Because to me, most roles, like a a defender is, although say a paladin is a defender, a fighter is a defender. They're both kind of tanks, defenders, vanguards, whatever you want to call them. Whatever that role is to protect, have high armor class, high hit points, predominantly melee role, whatever you call that. So despite the fact that the paladin is thematically similar to the cleric, 
he's really closer to the fighter because of his role. So mm. I think that those roles should define the characters. So I kind of wanted like a healer role, but I didn't want to play a high charisma guy. So I kind of was like, okay, I'm just going to create this kind of homebrew class that has roles like similar to like a cleric. So he's kind of like a combat medic. Um, and so he doesn't have any magic or anything like that, but he has healing capabilities and aiding capabilities that are similar to that what they call in fourth edition leader role or healer role or whatever. So we got into that and we got into kind of the main meat of the like adventure, the main conflict, which is basically will end the first chapter. So they kind of got to this old outpost, an old soldier's outpost, um, had a little encounter, introduced another scene where there was like, a site away from that outpost that portended that they were getting close. A little shed in there kind of gave them a little bit of foreshadowing, found a little treasure chest that had like a trap on it, came in, skirmished with some goblins that they made short work of, and kind of left it on. You could tell that there's more enemies inside the post. These are just the outside sentries, and they're getting ready to push in. Once they complete that, they'll hit level three because we also, the last adventure, we did half of the adventure. So they've done half of that adventure, and then, like, the first chapter of this adventure, I feel like they're ready for a milestone. Um, and that's kind of where we left off. So it, it went pretty well. It could have went a little, it was a little kind of working out the kinks because I should be probably a little more diligent about taking notes in-game um, mm -hmm. and kind of, like, remembering where I want things to go um, so that I can kind of leave little breadcrumbs. But, you know, we have a few quests that have been introduced, and it seems like the players all remembered what those quest threads were. So there's basically, like, they have, independent of the main quest, I think they have four open quests. So we'll start pulling at those minor threads, and then I'll have another plot point come in along the main quest that kind of ties into them. But I think the next leg of the journey, main quest, got to the end of the first chapter, get a milestone, and then they'll go take care of some of these minor quests, and then after those get brewing a little bit, maybe they get one or two of them done, I'll introduce another plot point into the main quest, and then decide, kind of, do we want to handle the main quest again, or some more of these side quests? Uh, you never want them to get comfortable, like, with, like, a clear direction. It's like, we have to do this, then this, then this. It's like, we have four quests here. All right, we got one, we got two out of the way. It's like, oh, now the main quest is beckoning us back. So do we want to go to these other two, or do we want to go back? And you kind of, like, I think those decisions make the world feel a little more lived in. Like, the plot mm -hmm. doesn't just sit there and wait for you to get to it, like a Legend of Zelda kind of fucking scenario or whatever. So. Yeah, yeah. I try to put those in, and whenever I make side quests, I always, somehow at the end, I have them tie in to the main to the main objective, I guess just to say, not the main quest, yeah. but it's like a bunch of little quests at all end at the main objective. Yeah. Are yours, yours, are, yours are just kind of like all of this shit's going on and which one are you going to do now? Well, I, I think that uh, I, what you're kind of talking about, I think, is maybe not the main objective, but at least an adventure should have a theme, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think like any good story should have a theme. Mm -hmm. And so... The theme here is kind of like political and environmental instability, right? Mm -hmm. There's these warring families and competing interests. And so everything is kind of in service to that theme. It all touches those different elements in some way. They don't necessarily all play into the main quest, but 
it's all about like this tug of war between these two families, which is the crux of the entirety of the problem um, as the main quest progresses. Now, obviously, there are some external forces that are bearing on that, but as far as the PCs should come away, is they should recognize that that is where most of the dramatic tension is, mm-hmm. and most of the quests will kind of live in that dramatic tension. Um, and now they could conceivably not resolve that at all and just resolve the big problem. Like, look here, I'm not here to fix your lives. I'm here to like address this one issue. And once that's addressed, then they could be on their way. Um, so I kind of try to tie it to that, that congruent theme. I think you could also tie it to a congruent goal, like you said, mm-hmm. some sort of solution and all the quests kind of percolate down into this one solution. Um, that's a perfectly viable storytelling model. It's just not happened. I think that that all, in doing that, you would have to have your, your side quests be a little more homogenized. I try to think of yeah. side quests that aren't just go get a thing. Yeah, come yeah. back and bring it back you know it's like a lot of quests are that way so i try to think of different no, i like that uh because i don't know maybe i'm just used to such that you know that end goal that there are all these side things going on and time is of the f- essence mm-hmm. but everything that's going on on the sides has to do with that end goal you know the big bad or whatever the hell that's happening at the very end of this chapter this adventure whatever but I would like to do. I would like to do kind of like what you're doing. There's all this shit going on because there's not just one big thing, you know, going on. There's problems happening all around. Some of them are smaller than others, but some of them could be done that need to be ha- uh, done quicker than, you know, the big thing going on. Sure. Yeah. A ticking clock. Is and it gives. And it gives options. Is saying, hey, if you want, take your time and help these guys out. If not. You know, oh, well, things need to be dealt with now. We got bigger things to deal with. Sure. Yeah, it's not always just about uh, if your players get invested, then there sh- it shouldn't always be about what necessarily the biggest threat is, but things that are important to them. And I think you flesh those out through different interactions. So you, I don't know. I mean, when I write like a story or anything, I usually start with in a single word, what is the theme of the adventure one word right yeah. maybe it's maybe it's family maybe it's um maybe it's uh xenophobia maybe it's any given thing so i just come up with that one word and then i go okay what's a sentence that encapsulates this theme in a little more detailed way maybe a 25 30 word sentence mm-hmm. so the theme is like family and you kind of go like okay the importance of family is what makes communities cohesive and thrive right that's the the more percolated theme. And then you just have everything try to tie into that so that everything is at least connected and not a series of just disjointed things. If you're not going to have each side quest or plot point tie into some narrative arc, because to me, that's a little harder because it's like, how do I, how do I anchor these side quests in a way that ties into the main plot? And sometimes at least for me, you know, you'll have an idea for a quest and then you'll try, like, how do I tie it to the main plot point? And you go like, eh, it seems a little ham-fisted, you know, yeah. it's like a shoehorned in there a little bit. And so I find it's a little more organic if I can just go like, okay, well, this is just on the theme of, of you know, uh, a divide, a power divide, or, mm. you know, a, a struggle for control, ownership of resources. All right. Well, let's... Uh... 
let's move on here. Uh, let's go into our community questions. How about that? Sure. Yeah. Got to save some time here. I want to try to get through both these emails because I think one's going to be quick and one's going to be a little bit longer to talk about. All right. What do we got here? Uh, 20. Oh, shit. Oh, man. We haven't done the 20. One out of 20 times it comes up. We've only had nine. Yeah. Well, we've had, what, 14, four times? Yeah, three or four times, yeah. <laughs> ooh, th ooh, this is a good one. All right, this comes from, um, from Rex. What elements are most important for urban adventures centered around a single city? How do you craft urban adventures to differentiate them from dungeon crawls or overland travel? How do you keep your players from just pulling up stakes and having their PCs leave the city permanently? I love this question. I remember seeing this and putting this at the top of the list because I thought it was a really good question. It is a really good question. Because I have a hard time with this one myself. And I know we've talked about it plenty of times how we don't want to just railroad them or do whatever we can to keep them in the city. We're trying to find good reasons to. Sure. Um, well, I guess I'll, I'll just start by saying I think that in the first act of the adventure, whatever it is, you need to be having characters make connections with NPCs that matter to them. And so to do that, you need to kind of have colorful NPCs because they drive the conflict. They drive the, the character's investment. Characters aren't going to abandon something that they feel invested in. And if that mm -hmm. person is here in the city and they have troubles that are related to the city, most common folk in the D&D, the Savage Worlds world, any medieval fantasy and likely, uh, you know, some other genres, not quite so much in like a Shadowrun or something like that. But, you know, this is a whole world that's predicated on the notion of a cottage industry kind of isolation mm -hmm. from grand civilization. So people have ties to the, the town in which they live. They take pride in it in some way and they have a network of people. You need to embroil your characters in the, the micro dramas, the soap opera of these connections in the first act of the adventure and get them to actually care about the NPCs. And so that comes by having fairly well fleshed out and quirky and fun NPCs that all have distinct personalities, maybe distinct ties to different factions in the city um, to kind of reveal like the bigger pillars of that community, whether it's the royalty, merchant classes, whether it's the local militia, whether it's whatever, guilds, stuff like this. These things are kind of like pillars of a, of a city. You know, they hold it up. And so mm -hmm. try to have NPCs that touch those pillars and then get the players involved in the more macro drama where they're invested in the actual outcome for the NPCs that they like. Also similar to make it distinct, I think, from a straightforward dungeon crawl, it has to, if you're going to place an a adventure or campaign in one city, it needs to be a fairly population-dense city. So the whole NPCs having ties to their community is easier to come through in a smaller town. But you, if the city is big enough, you can almost have like wards or districts, and then those will feel like neighborhoods. And so mm -hmm. they'll have more of a small town feel to them. Don't map out every corner of the city in great detail. Part of the fun is if you're in a big city, you're exploring different layers of the city that you 
are like beneath the surface. And so you can kind of engage them in a way that leaves them exploring and kind of peeling different layers of the city, whether it's sewers or warehouses or whatever. And similarly, on that front, the, to create dramatic tension, something of great plot significance happening presumably involves some sort of danger. And danger within the confines of a population-dense city creates automatic dramatic stakes because there are innocents about. It's not like a, you know, a monster inhabited with castles and the dangerous to the PCs and they just have to clear them out. It's like, figure out ways that this could erupt and harm innocents, hopefully innocents that the PCs have an invested relationship with. Then you create dramatic stakes, you get to different layers of the city where they're exploring and they're revealing different political intrigue, things that tie back to those pillars. Once you establish that groundwork, those pillars, the, player, the NPCs that kind of tie in little tributaries the players are invested in, exploring different depths of the city, how they filter up to those pillars and could affect them in a catastrophic way, the players will be in because they'll feel like a sense of mystery, exploration, uh, and they'll, they'll have some you know, skin in the game if the NPCs are play, players that they care about. Mm -hmm. One thing I always think of is <clears throat> you don't have to give them a home, just make it feel like a home. Like you said, with the NPCs that they can, when I first started doing the Savage Pathfinder, uh, the first session of the long campaign, I made sure to introduce, Jesus, how many, it was, it was at least six or seven NPCs and really let them kind of get to know them a lot to let them know that, Hey, there's a lot of people around here to get to know. And as they did, they did, they found a place that they were just like, wow, you know, we kind of really like it here. Got to know all these people that in to the point when I was doing the interludes or, uh, you know, whatever shit, whatever they call it in savage worlds. Now I can't remember, but, uh, that they were making their own little NPCs that they had connections to. And even the simplest thing, like, uh, like I have a, an innkeeper that owns the local tavern and one of the local taverns and inns. And she was a, uh, she was, you know, she wanted to be an adventurer herself, just never could make it very good. And now she rents out, uh, rooms to adventures for free, as long as they tell her a story of their adventures. So now that's just always a place that they can come back and they feel at home and a purpose for being there. And it, it kind of keeps them into the city. <clears throat> Like pretty soon I'm going to have it. They got to go up towards the north to the big, you know, 40 plus thousand population, mm -hmm. big city coming up. And uh, it's going to be completely different than what they're dealing with now because it's a very small, like you said, more of like a farmstead, very small community that everybody knows everybody. And now they're going to go to like this metropolis area. It's going to be a, it's going to be something different. Yeah, I think, too, just like on the same front of this is a great opportunity to use your PCs, merits, bonds, laws, and ideals to craft NPCs that you're sure they'll like, mm -hmm. right? Uh, generally speaking, there's, I think, two methods that I use to endear a character, an NPC, to the PCs. One is usually just make them quirky in some way. Give them some quirk and give them something in common that has very little to do with adventuring that the PCs also 
can revel in, you know, because the PCs kind of pursue these things like maybe they're a womanizer, maybe they like gambling, maybe they like drinking, maybe they're uh, constantly playing practical jokes, maybe they like like stealing from, you know, picking pockets and stuff like that. If you can make one of the PCs feel like they have a partner in crime for these things, you know, even if it's a, irrespective of adventuring, like, hey, man, like, how, yeah, I haven't seen you in a while. Like, let's go fucking hit the brothel, right? Yeah. That they'll, they'll, you're tying on those interests, and that's much more. Uh, you know, PCs have a tie and an interest in someone that they have lots of moment of levity for because you know, adventurer's life is often dramatic and heavy-handed and dangerous. So those moments of levity should resonate with your PCs. Conversely, use their bonds, merits, flaws, and ideals to mirror somebody else that typifies one of those things. Now, the, the moments of levity could certainly be the flaw, right? Like I have a weakness mm -hmm. for drink and this guy plays into that. But maybe he, maybe he values uh, family or camaraderie or he um, respects the law in the same way that one of your characters do. And you just got to get one of them in the party and the one of them has a lot of affinity then the others will probably be like all right it's basically like a mob guy vouching for another guy like oh well you know matt's character really likes this guy and he's my cohort and he's kind of like really likes him so you know i have an affinity for him by proximity uh yeah. you know because the pcs will like and respect other npcs that have values similar to those even if they're flip sides of the same coin which is like maybe you honor your commitments in some way or you're you're hard on crime right like kind of a fierce vengeance justice oriented character play to those those different aspects of your your pc's personalities and failing that if you can't play to those then usually what i do is try like presumably the people you're playing the game with are your friends and you like them in some way and they like one another try to create npcs that have sensibilities and personality traits similar to the players. Because, like, me and Mike are friends, and so, you know, and I know Mike is friends with Beto, and if I wanted him to, Mike to like an NPC, I could just very easily, like, what characteristics does Beto have that are charming, and what, is, what does he like? And I make an NPC like that, and he's, pro like, maybe Beto's character isn't anything like him personally, but I can make an NPC that's kind of very much like him, and if he's very much like one of Mike's friends, his character is probably going to like him. And so that's kind of a clever way to do that too. Yeah. The last thing I'll put into it coming from uh, a guy that's been doing a lot of cyberpunk stuff. The reason in cyberpunk games that the characters stay in one city usually, because first of all, it's their home. They got, that's their stomping grounds and they got reputation there. They've already got a name for themselves, but of course they do travel but they always come back home. And one of the big things is, is that their contacts are there. They got friends and they got people, if they need anything, they got people to talk to. And uh, that's one of the big things, because without your contacts, they're one of your best uh, weapons, pretty much, that you can have, really. Because yeah. that whole information, knowledge is power and information is key. Uh, so that's just it. If you, if you can get them, again, like we've already said, the NPCs that... They know that they can go and talk to you. They're not going to stray too far. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that plays into another thing, too. It's just this is the last thing I'll say about this. But um, that you're, you're basically you're touching on what I think is a, another way to kind of keep them invested that hadn't occurred to me until you brought it up, which is 
a relationship between the the work and like a reward like mm-hmm. not maybe a tangible reward but again if you can quantify that like the pcs do something and they're more well regarded they have more re- renown it opens more doors for them or maybe they are rewarded with like gold or whatever but like that's what you want is a if you if you're a you know a man about town you're a a key player and every time you do something it adjusts people's attitudes or or it adjusts the world around you in some way it's just like a job you know you want your hard work to be tied to to your merit and for that to be recognized and the more you can do that with each quest and each interaction players from my experience really love when they just like random like i'm going to talk to a townsfolk and they go okay like oh what's this guy's name and you go like he's, he's getting some good information and they, and they like like i have him in my contacts list now this is a guy mm-hmm. i know and i can go back to talk to him and like would build a rapport with him an otherwise unfleshed out npc that like you can kind of now begin to give a personality and focus on the relationship between the player and the, and the pc and the npc and the more you do that the more it pays dividends to the player the more they feel kind of anchored there's always going to be some unfinished business it's not just like tie everything I'm up in a neat bow and then fuck off. Um, you have to kind of keep introducing threads before any of the threads get resolved. If everything gets nice tied up nice in one little package and, and there's no more loose ends, the players feel like that's an opportunity to pick up stakes and leave. Yep. So just don't do that. Like don't, don't ever let them feel like they can be uninvested in the, in the scenario. Perfect. Well, there you go, Rex. Let us know what happens. And speaking of letting us know... We got two, two in the mailbag that I wanted to go ahead and talk about because I'm actually kind of excited about these. They're good questions. Neither of them start with hello, though. Fucking rude. But <laughs> no, I'm just with hello. <laughs> uh, the first one uh, comes from Brad with the Kung Fu Grip. Uh, nice and short. Matt has talked about different games and settings he has run, but it seems David hasn't had the chance to really do something he wants to do. So David, if you had a group that was ready for anything you wanted, be it game system, story arc, etc., what would it be? That's an easy question. Um, uh, I want to play. A, I want to run a sword and sorcery, low fantasy, gritty, Tony and the Barbarian kind of scenario where there's very little magic. The world is very savage, um, and the players get by not because of their destiny or their prophesized to greatness, but through their own grit and metal. Um, warriors and grimy thieves and, and all this. This is this is a world that I really want to inhabit in. And um, perhaps I don't talk about like all the games that I've run over the years, but I've run everything from fucking Star Wars to Vampire to Shadowrun to Rifts and like. And so I like these all to varying degrees, but it, you know, when all is said and done, you got to run what your players want. And so plenty of, um, I should say, part of the problem with a sword and sorcery genre is it just superficially looks too much like a and d world. Mm. Um, but that world wouldn't have orcs and goblins and, you know, the supernatural would be very rare um, and it would be a big occurrence and it would have psychological effects on the characters and so that they would kind of gather this patina of them over time. Uh, Game of Thrones is kind of in this sense, but more from a political intrigue. I would like it to be more Fafir and Greymauser, kind of like this, you know, 
maybe two or three PCs and they're kind of, everything is episodic. You know, you go on one quest and then the next quest has very little to do with the previous one because the stakes are very personal. Someone has wronged them and they're seeking revenge uh, or maybe it's even a chivalrous kind of thing. Someone has, um, you know, it's a, it's a principled stance that the characters are taking. So they're not doing world-changing events. They're saving the world from these giant, like, life-threatening things. Um, but they're invested in some way. They don't have any personal ties to everything. So it just kind of wipes the slate clean. And you can plug in different elements of the adventure, different NPCs. And so it gives a lot of variety, fast-paced, kind of pulpy stuff. I really dig that shit, but there's really not a market for it, and there aren't very many games that play to that that aren't super mechanically heavy. So that was, to... yeah, that was going to be my question: is if there was a special mechanic that you could add or take out from D and D? We'll say that, or if you want, you can just make your own mechanic. What would it be for this setting? Yeah, well, so like I've bandied this idea around in my head a bunch. One, I don't like the concept of hit points. I think that the Savage Worlds thing is better. Um, although I would like more something like health levels in VTM. I think that there should be more, uh, like, the characters should stay hungry. I like the the concept in the Conan RPG, which is just like, if the players don't, you know, it's not about the accumulation of wealth. Like, they should have things in mind. They need a new sword. They need a new thing. they got to buy a horse. I don't like the whole concept of, like, tracking every coin. I think it should just be conceptually rendered you can either afford something or you can't and these things are just a means to an end very little magic magic weapons aren't really a thing the characters get by on their skill and their reputation and and i really like that keeping them kind of hungry for actual wealth it's not about amassing wealth or or getting grand things i don't like the concept of the more diablo style of game where it's like your character's just an amalgam of like equipment that they have i don't think i don't like that um, I would like the armor system to be more of a soak system like it is in Savage Worlds. Um, I would like combat to be fast-paced, uh, very kind of, instead of tactical, more cinematic and dramatic, where it's like, you know, they're doing like lots of things, they're interacting with the environment, they're hewing through all kinds of enemies, and the characters are larger than life, uh, but the world is gritty and kind of hostile. Um, so they have to use their, their wits and their courage. You know, fortune favors the bold as opposed to like, let's strategize it. Like, how do we reach this, you know, come in here and like figure out that it's like, nah, you know, no. Like characters in these pulp things, they don't really do that. They swing through on a chandelier. They kick down a door. They they wade into like hordes of monsters confident that their abilities will uh, win the day for them. And so those are, you know, you have to have mechanics that drive at that, uh, that kind of usher that. I like the fate point system in Conan. There's a lot of things I like about the Conan system, but uh, <laughs> but um, but there's some things I don't like. It just gets too mechanically heavy. You know, there wouldn't be any magic use really. Um, sorcery would be something reserved for the world's evils and something that the the characters are combating and likely very afraid of uh, because it's so foreign. But no one else is equipped to deal with this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that kind of buttons up the broad answer. I've never found a system that really encapsulates everything that I would want, and I, every time I try start trying to polish up a certain type of system, it kind of 
takes it's like, okay now i have to figure out this first and it's like really hard for me to start you you, you start mm. to respect when you try to come up with your own game system you really respect people that come up with nice clean jesus christ economic game systems it's really difficult to do very much so but this, this this was cool. I'm glad that we got this question because I've never I've heard you talk about what you with the game that you're running at the time, and if you did have your your golden game that you could play, but you never went in in depth like that before. Yeah, I mean it's it's a, a variety of components. I mostly talk about what I don't like and what not what yeah. I would like to see. I mean the the fate point system is cool. It basically Savage Worlds has a little bit of this, and I like it where it's like you can spend something to just affect the plot, like. That's super cool. You know, I like the whole, like, in Conan, it's like you have a left for dead, right? You don't die outright, but you're dying, and you're right there in the grips, and you can spend these these points. And in Conan, well, the really cool thing is, is at the beginning of the adventure, what you do is you set things, label them out for the DM, and they're a way to communicate. Here's what I would like to see. They're not necessarily all good things, but if the DM, GM deigns to have one of them happen, you get a fate point, and they use examples from the Conan stories, right? Like, for instance, someone insults you for being a barbarian, right? Or or it could be a good thing or a bad thing, and it's just a way for the characters to be more involved in the plot, which is like, here are the things that I'd like to see happen to my character. Not because they're good, not because they're bad, but just because they're dramatic, and they're cool. And so when one of them comes to pass, you get a fate point, and you can spend those fate points to, like, max out your damage and, like, do something super dramatic. You can use them to stop your character from dying on the brink of death. You can use them to affect the plot in some way. And it's like, I think that's really cool. They also introduce um, in the Beasts and Barbarians the concept of just intangible wealth. It's just, they're just treasure tokens, basically. Like, you know, you do, you do this style of adventure, it's like one treasure thing. And then this is two, and then like a king's ransom would be like three treasure things. You get one between one and three. And then you can spend them on things that you would need as a group. Instead of being like, oh, there'll be 8,000 gold pieces, and I have 8,182 gold pieces, and I can like deduct that. So I gotta, gotta get a plus one weapon. And it's, it's, I, I want to get a drink later, so I gotta make sure that I hold this. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, yeah, okay. I don't. D&D is set up in a way that allows you to <coughs> track all that stuff, and it's like, eh, okay. I mean, I. That's fine, but I'd like something that's just a little more, uh, like, yeah, gritty. And, and I have some ideas in my head. I'm mostly an amalgam of different mechanics from different games that I think achieve that result. But, but meshing them all together to get them to coalesce in a way that doesn't have a bunch of bugs that you can't see without playtesting it a whole bunch is, is really difficult. So Yeah. Well, not to cut it short, uh, but Brad, I think that we... Uh... At least you got a good idea of what Dave would do. But uh, this next one, uh, I have a lot of questions that I actually want to talk about and bring up with Dave. So the next one, just going to dive in here. As an older gamer, I'm 50, by the way, do you feel that RPGs have become too relaxed to have class representation? For example, in AD&D, a druid couldn't become level 10 until they defeated another archdruid of the appropriate level to take his place. If you played a magic user and made it to level 9, that was a huge achievement in itself. If you played a paladin and did something that was not lawful good, you lost all your holy powers until you atoned for your sins uh, with your god. I believe David and I think the same way when it comes to the rules and we have a similar older temperament to the hobby. 
After hearing you talk about alignments and class-specific rules, it got me thinking about the older editions when I was younger and how playing a class was a very particular choice you made. Just wanted to hear your thoughts. Signed, Richie. First of all, Richie, it's Rich. You're 50, dude. Don't call yourself Richie. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but even thinking about this when he was talking about it, I was like, oh, shit. And just what we were talking about now, like, when a character back in AD&D, when we played AD&D, me playing the rogue, I remember I wanted to find fast weapons because I got to the top of the initiative order. Because the faster your weapon speed, the higher up you could be. And that was just something I never thought of because now it's all about just like what does the best damage or what does my character want to hold. And also, I didn't even know that because I never played a druid, or I knew it. I think you played a druid real for real quick back in AD&D when first I was of, trying to DM. First of all, love that mechanic, by the way. Yep, there's only a certain amount of arch druids. You know, you gotta mm -hmm. fucking go get one and take them out. Um, I think that his instincts about this are right. Um, and but I will say that yes, uh, class is less defining, but it's just like when you, there's always a tug of war. So you pull something in one direction and it, and it has benefits and it has costs. And he's fixating on the costs and kind of bemoaning them. And, and I don't disagree. I think we've gone too far away from the defining elements of classes. And some of those defining elements I think are really cool. You can't be a paladin unless you're lawful good. You know, you used to have prerequisites to or skills like you can't be a ranger unless you have strength of 14 decks of 14 wisdom of 12 like you just you can't do that and so people like you and me and probably you know rich <laughs> a little older than us kind of like that because it's it's more template oriented and games are supposed to be you know they're, they're all about for lack of a better word they're kind of about stereotypes and so the defining characteristics are inherent in the class, but I think that we've gotten away from that because a whole new generation of gamers who have been raised on a steady diet of you can be anything, they want flexibility, they want versatility, and we've gone so far in that direction that it's almost stripped the classes of any identity that they have. Fourth edition was worse, I will say that. It was like, it didn't matter what you you played, you could just, you could just customize everything. It's like, okay, I want to be a cleric, but say that I'm a cleric and, and, but really I'm just a fighter, you know, just yeah. like, I want to customize it to the ability that I want to be a fighter. And it's like, okay, like we, we've gotten so fixated on customization, I think because, uh, in particular, because video games have become such a thing mm -hmm. and, and video games are highly customizable and, and everybody wants to be able to tinker with every little aspect. And but when you do that, you blur the margins of what one thing versus another thing is. And it's just not in the zeitgeist to be like, things are inherently X, right? Things are inherently X. Matt and I come from the Midwest. People are less comfortable just making generalizations about Midwesterners. Midwesterners are this way. Well, not all Midwesterners. It's like, well, of course, not all anybody anything all the time, right? Right down the line. But it's like, I do think that we could... Um, Get a little bit back to that. I would like to see some of that because just like anything, there's always a pendulum shift, you know. 
state and was probably a little too far in that direction where it was like too rigid and too so it did really call out for like let's 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 relax it let's make it a little more flexible so i don't think that the current system is not without its benefits which is like you you don't feel like you're playing a cookie cutter character all rogues are this way all druids are this way all whatever are this way but we have to do better about like let's establish the parameters you know i like the old druid can't wear any metal armor you can't use any metal weapons yeah it's like it's a prohibition and but it's like some people it's bullshit i don't want to like fucking like, i can't wear this armor like why why can't i do that just because i'm like and, and you're right because when you really think about it it's there's nothing actually prohibiting the character from doing it you know it's it, mm-hmm. just like it's well it's just a principled thing and if you're a druid you have these principles and then and then they're going to come back with a not all hashtag I'm special snowflake druid. And so I should get special rules. And it's similar to why there's been a flood of different races, right? I want to, why can't kobolds be adventurers? It's like, okay, so now you just have a, you know, it used to be the civilized races and there was a certain civilized races and they started introducing some ones that were maybe on the more fringe. And now it's conceivable that like the civilized races just seem routine and boring to your players. And you're yeah, like, if you want to play a gargoyle, you can play a gargoyle. Right. You have a party that's a gargoyle, one that's a kobold, one that's a half ogre, and one that's a fucking orc. And you're like, how does this look like an adv- like a fantasy <laughs> adventuring party? It's like this is like a group of monsters like coming yeah. into a town, and this is not weird in any way. And so it's like, it's, when you go too far in that direction, I think it breaks the world. But like small introductions like the introduction of the tiefling as a playable race like that was kind of cool had some inner demons and stuff like that and i you know i allow that the dragonborn is probably on the cusp there too Mm. i like that but when you start getting into like these are basically historically monsters and now we're just saying that they're hashtag not all thing then it's like well then you start to kind of undermine the whole concept of the world and moreover Part of the appeal of it, which is the the moral simplicity often. It's like, there are good guys and there are bad guys. And I think part of a... The more complicated the world gets and the more whatever in the, the zeitgeist there is, divisiveness, the more you kind of like want like simplistic things where it's like, you know, there's, there's a right and there's a wrong and these guys are the good guys and these are the bad guys. And that's, I mean, I like a little more morally complicated scenarios, but I get that you're like, Orcs bad, humans good. and But the more you fuzzy those lines, the more you have, well, some kobolds are adventurers and actually are nice. And it's like, that creates a lot of complications and breaks the world a little bit. It's like, so kobolds aren't bad guys. Like, I can't just go kill a kobold if I see it because they're a threat to civilization. Maybe they have thoughts and feelings. And it's like, that's definitely a byproduct of, like, a newer generation's sensibilities. And that can introduce some very interesting... Um, complexities into the game but it's weird because that in a way is good because it's almost taken the place of alignment alignment is totally irrelevant now it used to be like i'm lawful good i behave this way simplistically now alignment's just totally almost irrelevant because they've introduced so much flexibility into the game for these like moral situations that could be fruitful would be interesting agnostic of alignment but if you just want to play a straightforward, simple, like, everything is cut and dried, this is your alignment, this is what it says, this is your class, there's really not a lot of allowance for that, and especially modern players aren't likely to find it as appealing. So I got a side tangent here. Just uh, earlier this week, I had a conversation with a old buddy that I used to play with a lot, 
<laughs> and we had a 45 minute discussion about what alignment Batman was. <laughs> and I, I told him he's lawful neutral, done and done. He's just like, he can't be lawful. He's a vigilante. I was like, I don't, just because you're lawful doesn't mean you follow the law. You follow your law. He your has code. a code. He has a code. He does not kill. He does things for justice. He's like, yeah, but he's, he's more good. He's for the good of the people. I was like, but he beats the shit out of people to near death. Like he, if you do a little bit of wrong, he doesn't mind breaking you in 50 different places. Yeah, I mean, uh, but that, that's the thing, too, is it's, it, the interesting thing about Batman is kind of like, is he about justice? Justice typically is like within the bounds of the law and punishment mm -hmm. meets the crime. And like, is he's like, he, he's, is he's he, out for retribution. There you go. Because justice would be a, embedded in a concept that there is a judge, a jury, and an executioner, and that those are separate roles. They're not the same thing. So it's part of what makes Batman interesting. Is like, yeah, you could you could say, well, is he lawful neutral? Is he chaotic lawful? good? Is right. he neutral good? Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, it you could make a case for him being neutral good because when he needs to work with in the bounds of the law, he does, and mm -hmm. when he doesn't, you know, inherently he's not that thing. And so yeah, and the categorization of alignments often doesn't cover a lot of things the paladin lawful good you know requirement is like well does lawful mean an acknowledgement of the laws of man or mm -hmm. is it like i have there's divine law and i am the arbitrator of what constitutes divine law and so that kind of like you can work it however you want and probably make it make sense so that you can justify your behavior. And so at, when you kind of spin it that way, alignment really doesn't, you know, when you have an alignment you need to adhere to, it's more of an issue because alignment is supposed to be more of kind of a guideline yeah. or what you would do in a given situation. But when it's too rigid to, to the point about the question, it's too rigid, then it just becomes a hindrance and it kind of like, sure, hindrances can be fun, but it's like, how do I have to, do I have to adhere to the things of this alignment when I actually have principles that go deeper than that? And they might not be in line with the like textbook definition of this alignment. So it's like, you have to have those talks with your players about like, okay, what do your characters believe in? What sort of, that's why the bonds flaws thing is a little bit yeah. more like nuance. Yeah. And that's the other thing, like uh, with Rich saying, I am a guy, I do, I love mechanics. I do love mechanics and games. First and foremost, I love to create a good story. I like to make a good in-depth character, but I'm also here to play a game where I would like mechanics to deal to play with and kind of have fun with. Uh, but then there's some things like back in AD&D where things would get kind of in the way, like with alignment, you know, all of a sudden, well, if I help out my friend right now, my, my party mate, uh, a guy that I've bled and fought with, uh, it's going to go against my alignment. Would I really do it? Of course you would, yeah. you know, but, uh, so out of all the old mechanics, what are, what are some that you miss that, uh, that you would want them to bring back? I'd like to see you probably, a, I think, a old mechanic that could not in its previous iteration, but could get polished up as uh, proficiency slots. Mm. I, li I like the whole concept that like you have proficiency slots instead of just more generic skills um so i think it would be good instead of having 
or characters classes proficient with weapons A, B, and C, or like this category of weapons and this category of weapons, you have slots that you can purchase for certain, because like a fighter being trained with all martial weapons, it's like, okay, does that really make sense? Mm-hmm. I like the idea, like, you used to be able to, like, specialize in certain weapons, pump more proficiency slots in it to get better with this specific weapon. And if a weapon were in a similar weapon group, say the same weapon group, like maybe you're specialized in the Bastard Sword or the War Sword or whatever they used to call it, and you're really good with that, it's not unreasonable to think that if you don't have a proficiency slot in a long sword, that some of the skill wouldn't transfer. But the whole concept that you're just, like, generically proficient with categorically all martial weapons, and you use them all with equal, like, um, adeptness, aptitude, whatever, um, mm-hmm. is is not really all that great. And same thing with, like, a rogue is proficient in, like, long sword, short sword, short bow, sling, you know, it's, like, specific things. It's like, okay, but what if you didn't want, what if you were a rogue that took special, you know, it would allow more customization in your background. And same thing with non-weapon proficiency slots. You could have more niche skills that make better use of like your character having like a unique background where he can craft stuff or he can he knows about heraldry. He has specific you know the the whole history skill could be like six skills and you could have variety of differing aptitudes at each of them because just because you know I have proficiency in history you know Maybe I know about ancient philosophy, but I don't know about heraldry, and I don't know about, like, construction. I don't know about, you know, you have variety. So I think that would add a little more texture. I think they could kind of iron it out in a way that didn't make the class skill list too laborious and didn't, um, you know, there's always going to be gaps in something. But I think that element of it is oversimplified in D&D for probably just to make the game run cleaner, and that's fine. But, um... But I would, I would like to see that. I think it would kind of, you know, get at what, why there's been such a level of customization now without having to hem your characters in. It would, it would get to the heart of exactly what was at issue before. There was more rigid guidelines in second edition for your alignment and your class. You had this level of customization when it came to your skills and your knowledge and your mm-hmm. proficiencies that kind of weighted out and they got rid of that oversimplified that. And then knowing it have a maximum customization for classes and stuff. And I would, I think I would just like it inverted a little more. But yeah, the transfer from AD and D second edition, AD and D into third, I think that's one reason why third got so bogged down by this clusterfuck of rules is because they tried to take everything that all the classes could do then. And they just spread it out. And they still tried doing things like cross-class proficiencies with the skill list, but the skill list was like 30-some-odd skills. It was fucking huge. Yeah. But uh, you know what mine would be? And it's real simple. It's not even really class-specific. But just um, languages, because languages were uh, percentile. Mm-hmm. That's just it. If you, want, if you knew a language, you had... Many times, if you came across it, you'd have to roll to see if you could understand it. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that. I thought that was so cool because I loved putting points into speak languages. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I, well, that kind of touched on what I thought you would, were going to say, which is the the different skills for the rogue. Um, different. I did like, love that. I thought that was so great. 
and they broke it out and it was like i get it that i think the starting percentages were just way too low for level one um except for climb walls start at 60 percent yeah yeah it started at like 60 or 50 percent and if you were a halfling it was like an extra 10 percent yeah um that was cool you got different bonuses based on your race and stuff like that and it was that was kind of neat, um, but the flaw in that was you discovered pretty early is I'll just dump all my points into one skill and use that like repeatedly yeah. to get experience points. It kind of games the system, but level um, up every two sessions. Yeah, but it was like yeah that 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 was probably a more instead of just having what sleight of hand and stealth and athletics cover all of the like nine skills and you know maybe you could I I don't know that I would want like specific skills to be just. I don't know that I would advocate for going back to a percent system because it mm. really does just kind of the beauty of, of D and D is that it's all a D 20, the higher, the better all the time, mm. simple, clean, really easy to understand. So it's not, there's no weapon speed. I would like to see more delineations for things in initiative. I would like things that like racial bonuses, more feats that bump up your initiative. Um, things that weren't just like, well, your dex mod, like so that you had more variety maybe maybe add in like weapon speed or something else like that mm-hmm. but there should be like different little bonuses that you could like delineate your your initiative with so that if you wanted to be a character that had really good initiative you could kind of stack all these little bonuses up here and there and there would provide a lot more variety um, almost every initiative count you have somebody who has maybe not changed the mechanics of the game too much but yeah percentages they just get complicated and they kind of bog you don't want to have differing rule sets for differing scenarios. That's the beauty of the D20 system in, in D&D mm-hmm. is that it, it unifies and homogenizes this thing that just says the general rule is D20 rule, higher the better. Like yep. <laughs> High numbers, good. Yep. So. Yeah, because wasn't saving throws you had to roll under in AD&D? Yeah. Or am I th- yeah. Yeah, you had yeah. to roll under them? had to roll under and then same thing with initiative lower was better in initiative which you know it's kind of like okay so this is your lower you are the closer you are to one one is goes first two goes second three goes third and it's like okay but that complicates things because it's like there was too many different saving throws for like different scenarios and it's like they kind of crunched that down and flattened it it's like these things governed by dexterity these things are governed by strength that is a better system in my eyes Mm. um so that's I would like to see something too that scales. Um, I mean, I guess it effectively does because your hit bonus. But one thing I liked about Thaco is that it was just like, you know, static armor class didn't matter as much. It was static armor class, but it was just like, look, I'm enough higher level of you that we're gonna like fight. You're not ever gonna hit me, and I'm gonna hit you like every time, and I'm probably gonna kill mm. you pretty quickly, and so. When you have hit points, it makes no sense that, like, a level 2 or 3 character would ever... Like, you should be able... Like, as a level 10 character, you should be able to take on a whole band of, like, level 1 adventurers and walk away more or less unscathed. Mm-hmm. And so, that doesn't really seem to scale with level. But I guess your to hit bonus does go up, so... That that, that was one thing I was going to say. And What is the one mechanic that we all don't want to come back? Most likely Thacko. Thacko, yeah. But it did have its benefits, and that was... Oh, one. sure. But yeah, all I remember is trying to do the fucking math when I first started and being like, Dave, how do you figure out Thacko again? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, it's like a reverse 
thing, you know, yeah. like, like a count up he's, from like a number that's down. It's like he's got an armor class of two, but your Thacko is thirteen, and you just rolled a, a ten. What does that mean? Yeah, well, that's yeah. Thacko is to hit armor class zero. So if he has an armor class of two, then you need a thirteen to hit an armor class of zero, which means that you only need an eleven to hit an armor class of two, and you roll thirteen, so you hit. But well, that's simple, too, right? That's too much thinking to do for just like bam, hit, damage. Yeah. Oh, dude, especially when she started getting in higher levels where people had armor class of negative two and negative three. Yeah. Like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, it's like, yeah, because it's like you just, you're going down into the negatives and it's confusing and it's like just higher is better. And like armor class taps out, I think. I don't think I've ever seen a monster or anything that had an armor class higher than like 23. Mm -mm. So no, like, that yeah. seems to be about the base now. Yeah. But yeah, there are some things I'd like to come back. If I had to play in a game with a class system, I like having that, that this class has this. It yeah. makes them special. It makes them unique. I guess I shouldn't say special. It's more uniqueness. Yeah. But I think that's going to be it for this episode. Yeah. Um, thank you to both Rich and Brad for your emails. And you see... Uh, you see, kids, if you want, just email us. We're going to fucking talk about shit for the majority of the episode, which is kind of nice. It gave us a lot of content to talk about. Mm -hmm. And if you want to email us, just go to inside the GM studio at gmail.com. Send us an email. We'll talk about it. We'll say thank you very much. Yeah. But uh, for this week, I have been Matt. I have been David. Good night. Warm in my apartment. <laughs>